Sounded a bit croaky, didn't it? Um, <clears throat> it'll warm up, don't worry. I've had a bit of a croaky voice this week. I'm okay. Just a bit of a cough, that's all. Um, so I will be having a sip of water from time to time. How, I'm hoping you're doing well. Um, have you got uh, Acts 28 open in front of you? That'll be excellent. Um, as you do that, I'm going to do that as well. It's important we have our Bibles open in front of us because that's your job this morning. You've got a job as well. Your job is to make sure that I'm on the money with what we're saying and what the Bible says. Um, my name's Graham, by the way. If you're a visitor with us today or you're um, new with us, uh, one of the ministers here. Yeah, so you've got a job. Your job is to make sure that I'm preaching what the, the Bible says. Um, that's important, isn't it? I'm going to... Uh, actually, we're going to have a Q&A at the end as well. Um, and if you want to have your as an outline too in your bulletins, you might want to have that out open in front of you. Now, um, since the, uh, the NFL, now I'm not a big American football fan, but I do follow a little bit. I do certainly try to watch the, um, the Super Bowl each year. I don't, I don't mind that. I don't really understand the game. It goes for far too long, if you ask me, but that's, that's life. Uh, since 1920, only one team, one team has played a perfect season in the NFL, the um, American Football League, the National Football League, it's called. That one team went through the whole season, it's a perfect season they call it, went through the whole season uh, without being defeated, it was the 1972 Miami Dolphins, how about that, the 1972 Miami Dolphins, um, coached by the famous Don Shula, now if you're into, you know, sport and coaching and that sort of thing, Don Shula is, is he's the sort of the big cheese, he's the guy you, you look up to when it comes to coaching. Anyway, they finished the season. They won all 14 of their regular season games, uh, then three post-season games, which included the Super Bowl, to finish the season uh, with the great figures of 17-0-0. So 17 wins, no draws, no losses. The next year, the Dolphins extended their winning streak to 18 uh, before losing their second game of the season to the Oakland Raiders on September 23, 1973. There you go. So... A little bit of useless trivia for you. This might help with a trivia competition one day. Well, you've already got some ammunition for a trivia competition, don't you? The 1972 Miami Dolphins. But um, what if the surviving members of the 1972 Dolphins would, every season, either gather together to drink champagne when the final undefeated season, uh, undefeated team earned its first loss of the year, or send a case of champagne to the team who beat this final undefeated team. Uh, they were pretty proud of their efforts, weren't they? They're proud of their undefeated season. So that's what they do. In um, four decades later, in 2013, President... Um, in fact, I've got a little picture of this. President Barack Obama, he uh, had the um, 1972 Dolphins... Uh, in, they were invited to the White House and he said that apparently in 1972 they didn't get their White House visit. So 40 years later... They finally get their White House visit and they met President Obama and there's Don Shula in the chair down there. So, cool story. Um, the 1972 Miami Dolphins were unstoppable. If you're a fan of that sort of football, these guys made it all the way through unstoppable. No team could hinder their progress. No team could hinder their march to the Super Bowl. Uh, amazing stuff. Friends, as we um, finish reading Acts... And I hope you've enjoyed it. We've actually come back to it over the last few years, you might remember. 
It's the gospel that is unstoppable. That's the theme at the end. The gospel is unstoppable. No matter what is thrown at it, God's word of good news for sinners powers on by the Spirit. If it's uh, progress dependent on human power, uh, it'll be dead in the water. But the power of the gospel to change lives is not in the messenger, it's in the message. Acts finishes with these words about Paul proclaiming Christ in chains under Roman guard. Have a look at Acts 28, verse 31. It's the last two verses of 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 the book of Acts. He proclaimed the kingdom of God and taught about the Lord Jesus, Lord Jesus Christ, with all boldness and without hindrance. What a perfect last sentence that Luke gives us here, don't you think? Uh, Summing up not only Paul's ministry, but the gospel ministry through the apostles. Boldness marked the gospel's proclamation. Without hindrance, described its progress. After his release in Rome, Paul resumed his travels. Uh, There's evidence for this and for about two more years, then he was re-arrested, retried and condemned and finally executed in AD 64. In his final letter, that's the letter Paul wrote to um, Timothy, uh, who was one of the pastors at Ephesus, in his final letter he wrote this, Remember Jesus Christ, raised from the dead, descended from David, This is my gospel for which I am suffering even to the point of being chained like a criminal. But God's word is not chained. But God's word is not chained. Now today I want to ask you, do you you believe that? Do you believe that? Or does the the good news of the gospel, is it only for some and not all? Let's pray together as we look at this last section of Acts. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for uh, today. We thank you for the power of your word, powered by your spirit. We pray that it has the power to change lives. And Lord, we pray that you'd be working us today by your spirit, through your word, as we open your your word and your Bible here, and as we hear of the the great things you've done and what you continue to do um, as your word goes out. In Jesus' name, amen. So, we come to Rome. There we go. So, here's a little map again. Here's Paul's last little journey, obviously under guard. He's been on the shipwreck. He's landed in Malta there and finally up here in Rome. Um, And those little places there I mentioned just in a second, uh, they're not right in Rome. There's about 60 or so kilometres from them. So, after three months uh, proclaiming Christ in Malta, uh, Paul... Luke, who's writing the Acts of the Apostles, as you know, also wrote the Gospel of Luke. And Julius, Julius was the Roman centurion, and I presume Julius had many guards with him, and there were a number of other companions. They finally make it to Rome. Now, Luke gives us a strange little piece of information. He tells us about these two idols, these two gods, uh, at the front of the boat that they're they're travelling in. So, hanging off the bow of their Alexandrian ship, where two gods of cast, uh, two gods, a caster and Pollux, They're, they are the, the mythical twin sons of Zeus. They were thought to be the protectors of those who sail upon the seas. What's Luke doing here? <laughs> Why does he bother telling us that? Well, I think there's a sense of irony. It's a bit of a dig. See, Luke, no doubt, is enjoying the irony that Paul 
who has been delivered by God from so much in this journey. Shipwrecks, we missed the snake bite bit, I hope you read over it in the last little week. Um, all these things now arrives on the, on the coast of Italy under the figurehead of these two pagan gods. You see what he's doing? Uh, he's having a bit of a dig at, 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 um, at this superstition. Anyway, Paul's real encouragement doesn't come from fake gods, these twin brothers hanging off the front of the boat. It comes from his brothers and sisters in Christ, um, his brothers and sisters in the faith. Have a look at verse 14. So there, uh, he's referring to um, Putelli, I think it is, uh, we found some brothers and sisters who invited us to spend a week with them and so we came to Rome. The brothers and sisters there had heard that we were coming and they travelled as far as the Forum of Appius and the three taverns to meet us. So give or take, that's about 60 kilometres, 69 kilometres I think it is, and about 40-ish kilometres. So it's a long way. At the sight of these people, Paul thanked God and was encouraged. Uh, Paul was encouraged by members of his family, the family of God. And Paul thanks God for them. Remember, Luke is travelling with Paul. Uh, I, I love how Luke paints a, a real and honest picture of the apostle. It's not a picture of a man hardened by all he's gone through. Yes, there is an example of perseverance in ministry to follow, but Paul is greatly encouraged and heartened by his brothers and sisters in Christ. For no doubt he was exhausted. And not only emotionally, but I think physically as well, of all he's gone through. In fact, just at the sight of them, look at verse 15, just at the sight of them, you sort of imagine the scene, can't you? As they walk towards him, just at the sight of them, was a cause of great encouragement. Isn't that wonderful? One of the letters Paul wrote during his time in Rome was Philippians. And we, already, we read a little bit about Philippians, or sorry, we read a little bit from Philippians a moment ago. But I want to read you something else from Philippians too. And I want you to see how, uh, see how Paul describes the support he received from the Philippian church. It's in Philippians 4, 10 to 14. I'm just reading 10 and 14. I rejoice greatly in the Lord that at last you renewed your concern for me. Indeed, you were concerned, but had no opportunity to show it. And in verse 14, it was good of you to share in my troubles. You get a bit of a sense of that, don't you? Of Paul's great uh, thankfulness to be encouraged from the church at Philippi. Friends, we must never underestimate the power of words to encourage Paul needed such words and actions, and we do too. Persistence in service, you see, that word ministry is the same word as service. It means the same thing. You can use them interchangeably. Persistence in service or in ministry ought to mark the Christian life. But we're not islands. We're not islands. We, we do it together. Okay, well, next Paul meets the Jewish leaders. Uh, it's on point two on your outline there, if you're following along. So, after three days on his own, living under house arrest, Paul organises a meeting with the Jewish leaders. The, the Jewish part of Rome, it's actually called, still today, it's called the Jewish ghetto. It's a strange sort of word, but that's what it's called. It's still around. Um, it's a bit of a surprise to tourists, if you're not looking out for it. Uh, it lies about halfway between the Vatican and the Colosseum, as you're walking through the old town. 
uh, in the middle of an Italian city, you will find an area dominated by synagogues, um, kosher butchers, and, um, uh, and Hebrew signs. Anyway, that's where Paul was, uh, on the banks of the Tiber River. That's where he was an apostle under house arrest. So, Paul makes it clear to these Jewish leaders, and we look at verse 17 onwards, that he is entirely innocent of the charges that he acted against the Jews or their customs. He says he's one of them. He says that these are his brothers. You see those words? Uh, These are our people. He uses those words, our ancestors. He had appealed to Caesar, you might remember a couple of weeks ago, because of the ongoing persecution from the Jews. Despite being declared innocent at every trial, Paul had every right to be resentful, didn't he? He had every right to, say, he had every right to have that us and them attitude. But he doesn't go there at all. He never goes there. He, he's got no axe to grind against uh, his own people. It is simply because of the hope of Israel. See verse 20? The hope of Israel, that's why he's in chains. And that's a term we've heard before. Paul's spoken about the hope of Israel before uh, at the Sanhedrin in verse 23. Uh, sorry, chapter 23. Uh, before Felix in chapter 24, before Agrippa, chapter 26, he's spoken of the hope of Israel. It is, of course, the real and certain hope that Christians have in the resurrection. Jesus' resurrection being the first fruits of the resurrection harvest, uh, picking up that language from 1 Corinthians 15 from Paul. The resurrection of Jesus, which appoints Jesus with power as the Son of God, as Romans 1 says. Because of the resurrection, we know that Jesus is the Son of God. That's what Romans 1 is saying. That's why Paul's in chains. That's why he's in chains. He's in chains because of his faith in Jesus. He's in chains because of his faith in God's King, God's anointed King, the Christ, the Messiah. He's in chains because of his proclamation of the gospel of Jesus. And above all, he's in chains because of his proclamation of Jesus' resurrection from the dead. Well, although the charges that Christians were anti-temple and anti-law had probably, had probably reached Rome, we see in verse 21 that these... Verse 21 tells us that these Jews reassure Paul that they hadn't received anything negative about him, which is a bit of a surprise, I think, but there you go. Um, But they do tell him, look at verse 22, that people everywhere are talking about this sect. And that term may not be as as uncomplimentary as we might consider it today. It just might mean a subset of Judaism. That's probably what sect means really in this context. A self-chosen group. In any case, everyone is speaking against these Christians. What is it about Christians that are so objectionable? (laughs) What is it, I wonder? Uh, Yes, there are some Christians that are objectionable. Please don't be that type of Christian. Um, But what is it generally? See, in the ancient world, uh, the Christians were a new community of compassion of generosity as they cared for the, uh, for the welfare of the poor and the outcast. And, and the Gospel of Luke makes, um, the, the, what we read here is that the Gospel, well, the Gospel makes people better. Look at the, the, the people we've met so far in Acts. There's the Philippian jailer and his family. There's Lydia, Dorcas, Cornelius, Barnabas, Peter, John, Paul. 
they're good, honourable people, right? Saved by the grace of God. What, what is it that people find so objectionable about this sect? Well, we could... <coughs> Excuse me, I'm going to take a drink of water. Um, I'll let you think about that point for a minute. We could, have asked, we could ask the same question today, couldn't we? What do people find so objectionable about Christians? Uh, why is it that Christians... Why, sorry, why is it that people use the name of Christ as a swear word? Doesn't seem to make sense. What Christians do in the society that we live in? Even a little bit irrational. But it's exactly as Jesus said it would be. Uh, John 15 verse 25 says, but this is to fulfil what is written in, the law, in their law, they hated me without reason. Well, in verse 23 to 28, an even larger meeting with the Jews takes place. Uh, Paul explains, he declares, he warns and persuades, trying to convince the Jews that Jesus is the Christ by taking them back through the law and the prophets. It is, of course, what Jesus did with the, the man on the road to Emmaus after his resurrection. He took them back through the Old Testament, through the law and the prophets. Let's have a look at verse uh, 23. They arranged to meet Paul on a certain day and came in even larger numbers to the place where he was staying. He witnessed to them from morning to evening, explaining about the kingdom of God from the law of Moses and from the prophets. He tried to persuade them about Jesus. Some were convinced by what he had said, but others would not believe. Paul does what he's been doing since he first proclaimed Christ, explaining that Jesus is the Christ, declaring that everyone must turn in repentance and put their faith in God and in the gospel of grace. But Paul's consistency is marked by the consistency of the Jews. A divided response. We've seen it a number of times already, haven't we, in Acts. Some believe, some don't. And in verse 26 and 27, Paul warns them about a hard-hearted response. Well, it's a, it's a non-response to the gospel, isn't it? He declares that they're, that they're passing up the opportunity of salvation means that the Gentiles will get an opportunity to listen to Jesus. What is it about this message that is worth listening to? Have a think about that for a moment. How would you answer that? Uh, why is it such good news? And then why do people reject it? If it is such good news, why do people say no? I'll tell you, I'll, I'll be interested to see your response. Maybe you can tell me after the service. Um, we've probably got a few answers here, I think. But here's what I was thinking. Uh, my two cents worth. Is that I think we like to feel, and I say we, us humans, we like to feel like we've earned something. We like being rewarded. We work hard, get a reward for it. We like that. Therefore, I can say, I deserve this. But that, of course, is the opposite to grace. Grace is God's undeserved favour, his undeserved love for us. And an attitude when I say, I deserve this, well, of course, that cheapens the cross of Christ to nothing, doesn't it? Whereas grace is a gift. You can't earn it. And nor do you have to earn it once you've accepted the gift. It's not as if it's some sort of payback. It's, um, it's one of my favourite scenes, I'm sure I've mentioned it before, um, in, in, a, in a movie. 
It's at the end of the World War II epic um, Saving Private Ryan. If you haven't seen it, it's a great movie. It's pretty, pretty gory, um, but probably realistic, I guess. But it's when the, the captain, uh, played by Tom Hanks, uh, who has lost several men already in, in their quest to save Private Ryan, who's played by um, uh, Matt Damon. Um, he, he pulls Ryan, Matt Ryan, in close and he too is dying, he's just been shot and he's died for the sake of these soldiers, uh, for, for this soldier, this, this Private Ryan. He pulls him in and he says, earn this. <laughs> it's a great scene. Earn this. In other words, earn the sacrifice that's been made for you. And for the rest of his life, Ryan is racked with guilt about whether he's been a good man. It's the final scene in the movie. Have I been a good man? Have I earned it? He asks his family. Um, Jesus simply says, salvation is a gift. He simply says that. Uh, it's a gift from God. You know, John 3.16, For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, his one and only son, whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. Surely that's worth listening to, isn't it? Surely that's worth hearing and understanding, trusting in. It is the best news anyone can receive. You don't have to earn it. You can't earn it. Because we fall short. We do. And it's what makes Christianity stand out from the rest. There's a great story of C.S. Lewis, that famous author and, um, and uh, writer and so on. Um, he was uh, late to a meeting, a Christian meeting one time, and this meeting they were debating about what makes Christianity unique. And now all these philosophical and theologians were all getting together and so on. Anyway, he comes in late apparently and he says, oh, that's easy, grace. <laughs> and he's right, isn't he, of course. The grace of God, that's what makes Christianity unique. God's free gift of salvation through faith. All we do is put our trust in Jesus. But sadly for the Jews speaking with Paul that day, grace is an impossibility. Salvation must be earned, they say. It must be like, I know I need to deserve it. I need to be rewarded, they said. Look what I've done. But they will continue to be a people who will be ever hearing but never understanding, ever seeing but never perceiving hearts that have become calloused. That's what they'll be. Okay, let's wrap things up. This these wonderful last two verses, this triumphant conclusion. Let's read them again. Verse 30. For two whole years Paul stayed there in his own rented house and welcomed all who came to see him. He proclaimed the kingdom of God and taught about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. We're not really told what happened next in Paul's life. Uh, did Paul make it to Caesar? No, we're actually not told. Uh, was he released? Did he get to Spain? Uh, what we do know is the gospel did reach Rome as God said it would. The last two words of the book are boldness, a word that describes the gospel proclamation, and without hindrance, a word that describes its unstoppable progress. God's word cannot be chained. So the baton is now passed on to us. The Acts of the Apostles have long ago finished, 
but the acts of the followers of Jesus will continue until the end of the world. And their words will spread to the ends of the earth. How about we pray for such boldness as the gospel goes out. Let's pray. Father, for your, your grace and mercy, we thank you. We thank you for that message of the gospel, the truth of your love for us. May we respond, Lord God, with, uh, with ears that are open to hear, that are hearts that are, that are ready. Um, please, Lord, may our hearts not be calloused. Help us to rely and trust in you and your work for us and not in what we can do. Uh, Lord, we thank you for this gospel. We pray that it would, that by your power it would continue to go out and we ask that you would use us. We ask that you would empower us by your spirit to share this gospel to the ends of the earth. In Jesus' name, amen.